listeners, you are listening to another episode of Beckett Babies. We are your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho, and we have a wonderful guest on the show. Her name is Marina J. Bergenstock. She is a director, dramaturg, performer, and educator. She holds an MFA in directing from the University of Iowa. That's where we met her. Uh, she formerly was on faculty at Beloit College in Wisconsin. She starts her PhD studies Uh, This year, this fall, at Stanford University in theater and performance studies, specializing in Arab theater. Welcome, Marina. Hi, Marina. Hi. I'm so glad to get to talk to you both today. Um, Well, we are so excited to have you on the show right in this moment of new adventures for you. You're starting in a new Mm. program. It feels great with new adventures and old friends. So, wonderful. So we like to start off um, just by asking people to tell us about their earliest memory. So what was your life like before theater when you were a young person? It's such an interesting question because it doesn't ever feel like there was a before for me. But okay, so my earliest memory that I can think of is one of the memories that I sort of question is how much of this is mine and how much of this was implanted by adults around me telling me the story because I heard the story a lot growing up. But what I recall Mm. is that I was two and I was at a family function, Um, but it wasn't just my family, I guess. So it was a a church function Um, and someone had left a microphone where a two-year-old could reach it. And (laughs) the microphone was left on because I, I'm assuming that I wasn't like dexterous enough to turn a mic on it to. But anyway, I went up to the mic and I picked it up and I sang a song that I had heard in church. Oh my gosh, of course you did. <laughs> what was the song? I think it was the Lord's Prayer. Um, oh. I, that, that's the story. So, but apparently everyone just let me do it because at a certain point, like, do you really <laughs> stop the two-year-old who's at a church function singing a church song? Like, no, of course you let her go. So oh that's the like the earliest thing that I can remember. Um, I just that. singing, yeah. And did you remember that? Do you remember I, that? Or is that well, people so telling you? That? Definitely parts of it are people telling. Like, I don't think I would have remembered what I think or where mm-hmm. I was. But I remember there was this really pretty podium. And I remember grabbing, I, I guess, grabbing the microphone. Um, but mostly I remember people's responses to me. Like, some people were very pleased with this event. Some people were a little bit more dismayed. So I feel like I remember people's reactions to the thing that I did more than doing the act itself. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, clearly yeah. it was affirming for you because then you went on to <laughs> build a life and performing. Right. Well, and yeah. singing was such a big part of my upbringing. I just remember at one point thinking, oh, like all families don't sing in a four part harmony because that's something that my family did so frequently together. And so, yeah, singing, I think, was sort of my gateway into theater. Mm hmm. Cool. So tell us a little more about um, how you went from that two-year-old to the director you are today. <laughs> um, did, you, did you act in school, um, in college? Yeah. How, how, did you, how did you kind of move into directing? Well, you would think that that performance would have sort of, you know, garnered a little bit more <laughs> immediate respect for my craft, but... 
<laughs> I started taking ballet classes when I was like five or six. So that was like my first performing. Um, and after that, I started taking piano. So I felt really immersed. Um, and we never had like school plays in elementary school. We had concerts. And so I would sing in those. Um, but we did have a talent show every year. And so I remember performing in these talent shows. And my dad is a really great pianist. And he would accompany me in the talent shows, which was really fun. Um, but yeah, so my high school was seventh through 12th grade, which was now in retrospect, very odd, but at the so time it was just middle school. Yeah. So there's no middle school. Elementary school was through sixth grade. And then you went to high school from seventh through 12th grade. That's yeah. fascinating. It I think that in a way, I think that makes a lot more sense than sequestering 12 and 13 year olds in their own <laughs> Yes. <laughs> When when I hear of like dramatic middle middle school experiences, I can't relate, but I can imagine when you put like teens in that environment just by themselves. Anyway, um, so seventh through twelfth grade was high school, and so I was in choir and band, and then I auditioned for the musical, and it was Godspell, and I got a part, and that was the first time that I got to perform with other people, and I was like, oh, if people can do this forever, just be on stage and sing and act and dance like I want in this sounds great to me um yeah and that's just sort of it took off from there I was in a show I think every year uh, and sometimes there were outside shows like in a community theater nearby I was in Cats at like 16 or something and then did some more community theater shows so it was such a great way to find people who I had things in common with too because I didn't always Mm -hmm. find that um and so people that also really like to express themselves in this way, they were also sometimes the people who were most politically active. Um, like I was on a youth advisory council that our county commissioners had set up. And so many people in that were also people who did theater. So, cool. yeah, yeah it's really neat. Also, sorry, oh, I don't know if you're familiar, but we called it forensics. A lot of people call it speech league, um, but it was essentially a way to act additionally. Like they have like the categories of prose and poetry and duo drama and all of these things. So that was another way that, like you got to perform. That's um, so interesting that you called it forensics at your school. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. it's one of those things, again, you don't realize it's weird until at Thanksgiving, your aunt asks you how your... Um, like crime scene club is doing. (laughs) So where did you grow up again? I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And then so you go to college and and then you studied theater in college. Sort of. Um, So I have two degrees from Penn State. Neither of them is in theater. Um, I really, yeah, one of them. So I was very close to my third degree in theater and I talked to my mentor at the time who was a theater professor and she said, you already have the credentials to do this. Um, the piece of paper at this point isn't going to make a huge difference. And I had just gotten a job teaching high school, um, English and theater and directing their plays. This was in my senior year. Um, and she said, you know, is this something that you need to do right now? Um, so I, I didn't do it. I had some mixed feelings at the time, but it seems to have really worked out. So I feel yeah. okay. So I got to college and wasn't sure what I was going to study, but I figured, okay, like I'll audition for for plays. Like theater was always home. So I gravitated there. 
Uh, and I was cast right away in Moliere's The Learned Ladies as Clitand. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I mean, I acted in a few shows, but there was a show that I didn't get cast in. Um, it was a semester. We usually did one show a semester at the time. And there was a show I didn't get cast mm-hmm. in. And I was so sad because I felt like, oh, my community is in this space. Yeah. What do I do? And so I asked if I could assistant direct. And my professor said, um, sure, but she seemed a little skeptical because I hadn't taken any directing classes yet, but she was really kind and just said, like, you can be there with me and we'll see sort of where this leads. But that led to so many amazing conversations of, okay, well, why did you have this idea? Like she had these great ideas and I couldn't figure out where they came from. Um, But she talked to me about what was influencing how she was shaping things on stage and her conversations with the actors. And I sort of became infatuated with Mm -hmm. how a director could really do so much on stage. As an actor, I was always in charge of one vision and a director was suddenly in charge of everything. And I found that so fascinating Mm -hmm. and just the level of detail and thought you needed. Marina, that's such a cool story because I think so many people, I mean, I think that's a really common experience of, not getting cast in a show and feeling like you're missing out and your whole community is is in this inside of this thing that you can't be inside of. Yeah. And I think many people would then be pushed or choose to go away from the theater, but you found a way to go towards it, you know, in a different role. And I think that's so cool. Mm. Um, and then it unlocked this, love that you have for directing that you maybe didn't know you had. Right. I mean, what a gift it ended up being. And I've often said that to students because I've been an educator in different forms for a while, but sometimes I've noticed the same thing where obviously you don't, you know, you don't not cast someone as a gift to them, right? You cast the people that that are the best fits for that play. But so many of my own students have found oh, that's how I got into tech theater was I didn't get cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because so many high schools, right, have, they don't always have like the tech theater roles you can fill. And not a lot of high schoolers get to stage manage or direct. And so at least where I'm from, that was the case. Yeah. Um, so finding it in other ways, right? Yeah. So that's sort of where that was born. And the whole time, so my professor was trained in Suzuki and Viewpoints with City Company. And so that's what I was finding my training in too. So I was finding this physical theater background uh, or training that wasn't anything that I'd seen before and work that wasn't just realism. And so that was also really shifting my world too. Um, And then they had student directed one acts for student written plays. And that was sort of my next, my solo project, my first one. When did you start shifting to um, new work? Like you found your way into directing new plays and how, and what has that process like been like for you? It's really shifted. So the first time that that my first piece was a new piece, um, it was in the student directed and student written one acts. And I did that for the next two, maybe three years. Um, and it was fine, but because I was forming my own directing experience and really still figuring out my relationship with words on a page, I, don't feel like I was having the conversations that I later learned to have about plays and about new work. Um, 
So it was exciting to get to work with new plays, but because it wasn't a development process as much, it didn't feel like it felt sort of like almost a directing an extent play. This play exists and Mm. now I'm Mm -hmm. putting it up. And it was exciting to see audience reactions to plays that were new. And so that was something that definitely shaped my experience. But it wasn't anything like getting to work at the University of Iowa with new plays and and playwrights. And what did you find exciting about um, working on a new play then? And what do you find exciting about it now? Because it's definitely a choice that directors have to make, I think, whether to focus more on... Um, you know, bringing new plays into the world and and directing a first production versus um, going the route of mm-hmm. you know older plays, right? So I what think at the time, to- yeah, um, at the time I was drawn to everything about theater was so exciting to me because it all felt like oh, I've done theater for so long. But, oh, theater exists outside of sort of the tap dancey world of Broadway that I had always imagined, mm-hmm. um, right? I was always thinking of life as a as a singer and dancer, and those things were great, but suddenly, oh, you can evoke these really powerful things with words, and it sounds so cheesy, but I don't think I had really realized it until college. Um, so I loved seeing what these new plays did, that plays that I had read in the canon really weren't doing and plays that I was reading in my script analysis class didn't feel like they were hitting a cultural mark the same way that the new work was Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't even know that I would have articulated it the same way at the time but something sort of made my my heart race about the the new plays Um, it's actually what Anne Bogart calls like the the pulse test or the maybe she talks about it as the the hair standing up on your arm but like you have to get excited about a play, and that's what yeah. the new plays were doing to me in undergrad. What's the role of a director in um, helping to birth those new plays? Because I think this is something I didn't really realize, um, you know, when I was starting grad school, when I was, you know, just writing plays as a young 20-something. Like, I didn't, I didn't realize how instrumental a director can be Um, And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you see your role. Definitely. And it really depends on the play and the situation too. Um, So for directing Mm -hmm. a reading, I have a different approach than if we were directing a a full production or or any sort of realized production. But I think the first thing that I always do is try to have a conversation with the playwright about like, what are our objectives? If it's a reading, is it the first time that you're hearing this text out loud Um, sometimes I think readings can get really bogged down and this is just an opinion that I have as a director, uh, that they can get really bogged down in props and other things. Um, because sometimes Mm -hmm. a playwright and a director really want a production and they're not getting the production. So they're doing this reading. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and right. Like (laughs) we've seen that happen. Um, but I think readings are so great because they really are laying everything bare, the text, the actor's. Um, so it's a great chance for the playwright to really get to see what's there and yeah, why cover it up with these other things. But I mean, obviously if a prop is necessary for storytelling, great, but it's the time that you can also say, what is the story here? Is this prop something that is necessary forever? Is it, can it be done with a a stage direction with words with, with something else? Um, Mm -hmm. but 
yeah, at the University of Iowa, I found, especially in the gift of of getting to work with so many different playwrights was the conversation was always really different. And for each play, depending on where it was in its process, that conversation was so different too. Um, finding out what the play really needs at that time and what the playwright needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with what, one of the playwrights I got to work with a lot is a friend of all of ours, Ryan Oliveira. Mm-hmm. Um, and his plays Former are, guest on Beckett's Babies. Yeah, refer back to his episode because <laughs> I actually don't know that I've gotten to hear it, but I'm sure it was amazing. Um, but Ryan has this huge imagination and it's reflected in the pages of his work and it's so beautiful. But because we were developing new work, sometimes, especially people in the technical theater, um, would say, well, I don't know that we can do this in this production. And it's, it was their job often, especially as faculty advisors, to say, well, let's pump the brakes. We don't want to, we can't spend, you know, a thousand dollars doing this effect of turning this human into a whale, for instance. Um, shout out to Below the Pacific. <laughs> um, what yeah. was great about the conversations with Ryan and I were like, well, we don't need $1,000 of effects. What can we do with a sheet? What can we do with a lighting effect? How can we really tell this story? Because there might be a world in which if when that play gets a production that can spend thousands of dollars on each moment, awesome. But you can really tell the story so differently in different ways so yeah having those conversations and not letting outside voices influence script changes which is something that I felt like I was so wary of like no we don't have to change this moment we find the find the moment so it sounds like you partly have seen your role as kind of protecting the play as it develops from being um limited or um made smaller by the constraints of a particular production. I love that articulation of that because we've, we so often use metaphors to talk about the ways that we work, right? Like, oh, the, the play is the baby and we have to really protect the baby. And I think <laughs> mm-hmm. that's so great. But taking it a step further, all children are different, right? And we would totally note that in a human child. Um, so we have to note that in plays. We can't treat them all the same way because they yeah. all have different needs. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so definitely I think protecting, uh, to ask questions and not in a way that's ever, why is this there? Right. That's, it's not a, (laughs) a question to sort of interrogate the play harshly, but to say, well, what, what is this moment and how do we translate that to different audiences and who is the target audience? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So finding, uh, just being the first outside eye, I think. And as a director, you're always advocating for the audience, but I think sometimes the trap can be to advocate for the audience too soon for the new play. First, you have to start with the play itself and really work there. Yeah. I have a question. So, Marina, when you get the play, uh, what to, what is, like, the first thing you do? Like, what are – like, what – questions come into your mind like well, like do you have like a I guess what I'm trying to say is like what is Marina's uh yeah. toolkit like <laughs> that she has like her tool belt like what do you start pulling out questions you ask or um what do you find yourself doing first when as soon as you get For that sure. new play um, the first thing I do I'm a paper and pen kind of person uh which is not mm-hmm. always uh, the easiest way to work but it's really great so 
but I'll, I'll print the script out and I will highlight things. I'll make notes. I'll circle word choices that stand out to me or questions that feel like uh, maybe either a, a, a gap or something that I'm confused on. Um, but I really try to read it as an audience member that first time um, because any and all questions are on the table and nothing is too small or too nitpicky or too dumb. Um, that doesn't mean all of those questions get addressed with a playwright right away. Um, but I keep that copy the whole time because even after, let's say, four weeks of of working on a script and maybe you're heading into tech, I'd like to go back to that script and see if, if let's say the version of the script is still relatively similar. Did we answer some of these in rehearsal? Is there anything here that's sort of left unanswered that I have become accustomed to in the play that an audience member um, might see and question differently or be confused by? Um, so I'd like to keep that first version that I mark up. Yeah. Yeah. Because because there's going to be, multiple different versions and then so to have sort of I think an anchor or sort of like a grounding type um version that you're like what what was that before <laughs> and then where's it now yeah. and where it's heading and one of the dangers with new plays is that if people haven't worked with them before they think every question or confusion that a first-time reader has needs to be edited and that's not true as a director sometimes I just need to know what the inspiration was or where we think that the character motivation is coming from because then, oh, well, that's a simple character choice that we can mm. sort of work with the actor on. Um, just because you have a question or confusion doesn't mean that there are any changes necessitated in the script. Can you give, I'm so curious about that. Can you give an example of a time when like you've had a question about a new play that didn't result in a change to the text, but informed how you, you know, made a staging choice or something. I know yeah. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no, but this was great. So this was actually a production that I was the assistant director and dramaturg of last year in Chicago. Um, it was a new play written by Fuad Tamor. And it, the play was called Twice, Thrice, Thrice. And it's a beautiful play uh, about these Arab women. And so when I first read the script, there was a character who seemed to be a little harsh in some ways. And then also... Um, making manipulative choices that I didn't understand at first. But mm. they were things that I noted. And then I talked to the playwright as the assistant director and as the dramaturg. And obviously the director uh, was in the room and she was so wonderful and really on top of some of those uh, character questions already. Um, but I was able to sort of ask about that character's arc because it wasn't something that I was following on the page necessarily. But the playwright sort of pointed out areas that were ramping up to some of these decisions that I had read into in just a different way. I had interpreted some of these lines to be different. Um, and he was able to show how some of this um, manipulation is not necessarily the right word, but how this character was really viewing the world and the characters around her and, and her stakes of what she needed. And so by pointing out where those builds were, oh, it makes perfect sense because then when you talk to the character or the actor playing this character, you just make sure that that arc is really in place there and, and the text read and worked really well. Um, but it wasn't something that I was getting just from reading it that very first time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are some um, plays or 
uh, playwrights that excite you right so, now? So I mentioned this to you both before, but Young Jean Lee is on faculty at Stanford. And I find her work really exciting. I used to teach it in my script analysis class. And so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to take a playwriting class with her. Which I, um, which plays did you teach? Um, so most recently, Straight White Men. Before that, um, Songs of the Dragon Flying to Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Definitely. So she's really wonderful. And I hope that I have the courage to take one of her playwriting classes because I think that's always a really helpful thing to get to do. Um other playwrights, Madeline George is a playwright whose work mm. keeps coming up for me. With my directing students, we kept coming back to a uh, curious case of the Watson intelligence and mammoths. Oh, uh, seven woolly mammoths. Wonder, Wonder New England. New England. Yeah, I think that's yes. it. <laughs> yeah. But th- I love work that the first time through, I can't fully imagine what it would be like staged, or I. And I, I walk away thinking well, that would be tricky. Like I love that kind of work and I find her work to be that work. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the characters mm-hmm. are so interesting and I want to spend time in rooms with them. And so like that's work I'm drawn to a lot. Other playwrights that I've been reading, Heather Raffo, um, Ari Pamatmat, I always revisit his plays, uh, Larissa Fast Horse. Jamil Corey. So Jamil Corey is the um, artistic director at Silk Road Rising. I think he actually has a longer title, um, but in Chicago. And he is a playwright who wrote one of my favorite plays, Precious Stones, um, many years ago. But he also now writes video plays. And so, right? Like, and this was before COVID. So this wasn't like a response to the pandemic. He, one of his plays is called Multiverse Polly. And it's a conversation where one character literally is portraying multiculturalism and the other is portraying um, polyculturalism. And they have this conversation. And I just, I'm, I'm finding them so interesting. And there's definitely something really neat about them. And also just what an accessible way to, to put your work out there too. So, yeah. So is a, how is a video play different from a film? Great question. I, I know I'm putting you on the spot again. No, this is great. <laughs> I mean, I'm just curious. I'm having trouble picturing it. Yeah. So I think in this instance, it's just they were two actors in a space where things weren't edited out. It was a one-take situation, which okay. I would associate with a play. Uh, and so there weren't any like close-ups necessarily or um, like camera angles weren't sort of thought of in that same way with directing it was directed as a play where the the camera would stay stationary as an audience member um mm-hmm. oh but is that a phd research question sam maybe let's, let's go right this <laughs> well you know i think especially in this moment of zoom plays inquiring minds want to know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well and i have a pitch for i i'm in no way affiliated with zoomtheater.com but the work they're doing on Zoom is super fascinating to me. Ooh. Have you seen I anything think, that they've done? No, I have to check but, that out. So mm. one of the plays, um, it's Anna Ziegler's Actually. So it's a two-hander. And it was these two actors. They were each in their homes. They never met in person. Um, but 
the Zoom theater had stage managers who had control over their the actors' backgrounds. So it was like a remote access Ooh. control. Um, and <laughs> I know it sounds a little bit, <laughs> maybe not something you would always want, but <laughs> the actors would, um, the stage managers would change the actors' backgrounds. So the background was the same image. So it looked very much like they were in the same place. And then the play was really seamless in so many ways. Like they were always standing in the same area. Cause like if you stand too close to a camera, it very clearly looks like you're in a different space and time than mm-hmm. the other person. Right. So we found out later they had to mark up their zoom area with different lines to show like where they should be for standing for different scenes so Whoa. that they were equally close to the camera and they did handoffs. Like there was a handoff of a flask And they had to put a bookshelf near them and essentially practice like you would practice a fight call, handing this thing back and forth. And then resting it on the bookshelf when it was out of... And then making sure your things were there next for your next pickup from that person. And that's the value of stage manager. I mean, there are many values of stage managers, but you can't really do that without a stage manager. Absolutely not, right? Like you really need everybody to be involved in the making of, I mean, all theater, but especially this. Um, I'm taking a class this semester called digital theater making. So I don't know what that will entail, but I'm really excited to find out. And I feel like I'm a step ahead thinking about because of all (laughs) of the the work we've gotten to see done during this pandemic. Yeah. You know what I want to see is um, a play on Instagram stories. Like I feel like I haven't seen that. That would be a hot do you mess. Mean, I'm but sorry, do I you would mean want Instagram to see that. Reels. Oh <laughs> no, no, no! Yeah, I don't, not reels. Um, just go live, and you're like, "What's going on? Somebody just went live." Would it be little clips that you kind of watch one after the other on stories? No, do you just go live? Oh, just go live. You could just go live with the person. I think you're only like two person. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most. But like, do you just go live and then you're basically doing the play and then people were just going looking through their stories they're like oh someone went live and they just click on it and they're just forced you know it's really good i think for improv where if you have if you're doing a form where the audience is like throwing out suggestions you know then yeah uh, they could do that in the comments that's funny yeah that could be really funny and fun i need a noun an interaction I don't know. I feel like that's just every impression I've ever seen. I mean, wait. Well, um, so Marina, um, since you're, you have all this educating experience um, and you're so worldly as a director, what advice would you give to our younger listeners who might be just starting out and maybe are interested in developing new plays directing, exploring that side of themselves, <laughs> what would you tell them? Mm-hmm. I mean, do it. <laughs> <laughs> My, I'm an Anne Bogart stan from way back. Um, and Anne Bogart has this quote that is repeated all the time, probably mostly by me. But the quote is essentially something like, do not wait for the right time, the right amount of money, the right like experience or the right knowledge base. Like the work that you make now will determine 
your life. Mm -hmm. It's a much Mm -hmm. better quote. So definitely worth looking up. But I used to feel sometimes, definitely in undergrad and before that as well, that I had to wait until like I knew a certain thing. Like, oh, if I know all of these plays by this playwright, I'll be really ready to dive into this. Mm. But that's such a gatekeeping mentality, right? And like, that's not what we want. So, I mean, and you definitely shouldn't, you know, gatekeep for yourself. There are plenty of other people doing that for us. Um, So yeah, find people whose work is really interesting to you and talk to them, make relationships. Um, There are so many, I'm a Virgo. And so I have found that (laughs) my to-do list dictates so much of what I do. But the times in grad school that I would sit in the lobby and talk to a playwright or talk to somebody else who was making work was so necessary and inspiring to me to see what other people are doing and what they're interested in. And so I think my second piece of advice there is cultivating your own interests and knowing that what you like is really valid and worthwhile. And so even if it's just like watching TikToks right now, like, okay, like what is it, what kind of form is theater and TikTok, right? Like Cho's talking about these Instagram stories, mm-hmm. reels, I'm not sure. Um, but like use your <laughs> interests and really go go further with them. Um, it doesn't have to be just like memorizing this, I don't know, theater canon or reading all these books on 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 directing, which are all really great and helpful. But yeah. I really- do worry about people at this moment because so much of the advice we usually hear for young directors is like, see a lot of theater, which mm-hmm. you can't do right now. Um, you know, collaborate with other people in person in a rehearsal room, which you can't do right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, spend time experiencing other art forms, like going to museums, which you can't do right now. And so it, it does feel like uh, this, you know, what you're saying, I'm just like, yes, yes, yes. Find a way to cultivate that artistic sensibility through you know things online or um, you know yeah we have so much computer fatigue right now too I know it's really tricky because like there are some museum tours that you can do online to look at art and to do these things but maybe that's not what you should do after you've spent all day maybe with at your day job online um but just really Mm being kind to yourself, I think is like the biggest pandemic thing that we all need to do is that it's okay if a lack of motivation is, is what's hitting you right now, because the world is, is pretty tricky, but remembering that there are people who feel similarly to you. So if you do need to reach out to someone, even just to talk, like people are are there for that. And then there's always going to be a lot of work online. Don't feel like you have to see Mm. all of the work, right? Because that can be (laughs) really Mm -hmm. hard. But if you're into X, Y, or Z, like someone is making that. And the same way that you could see a play in person, like you can see online and then get in touch with the director or playwright or actors who are doing that work because they likely want to talk to you because we're all feeling so isolated, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm just always a, my, the advice I was always given was, and keep reading plays. And I think that's so true, but keep reading new plays keep reading like if if you can read a you know a new play exchange play today um go in with a friend on a subscription to new play exchange and, mm. and check out the other work that's being done um 
last question before we move on to glistens. Um, so how would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century or the century <laughs> <laughs> um, currently or of as of now? But um, yeah, based on everything you just said, it would be kind of interesting oh to sum it yeah. up here. No, if you can. Sure. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this is like the million dollar question though, right? What does it mean to be an artist? Mm -hmm. I have a rule, which is you're not a definition. You're a work in progress. Ooh. Marina, you're so, Marina, you're so quotable. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but so it's a rule that I like to, um, I'm sure someone else said it first. Like I, I'm not the first person to have, to have had this thought. Just claim um, it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but in my marriage, it's something that we like to, to say and, and to try to live by. Um, but as an artist, I think, and as an educator too, right? Like every day we are a slightly different person than we were before. And sometimes that requires us to really stop and sort of reshape our worldview and to reshape what being an artist means. Right now, mm. I've always felt like art is tied to the political so much. Mm. And that's because of my personality and because of the way that I view the world, but I think that being an artist is political and what we choose to focus on. Um, it doesn't mean that all artists have to, you know, go canvas or do things like that for the vote. But I think finding why you're doing what you're doing and know that because it's always been done like that isn't a good enough answer and really finding your own personal why. So as an artist, you're a work in progress. You're always asking why. And not just of yourself, but of the world, asking why is this the work that we're making right now? Is this the work the world needs? Um, That's great. Yeah. You know, there's, I feel like there's, there's more. There's to another thought in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I wish that I had a, more of an answer at the end. I, well, maybe, maybe one way to think about it is, um, do you feel differently about being an artist now than you did say 10 years ago? And like how has the, I don't know, national and or global climate um, influenced the way you think about being an artist? Mm. That's a great way to help me. Thank you. <laughs> I think 10 years ago, I felt like I was playing by someone else's book and like I had mm. to mm -hmm. um, because part of, I don't know, um, maybe the way that I was taught in school, but I felt like I had to be a really good student. And as a professor, right, I love students that are, are there following the, the rule book, but there was so much of an emphasis on following the rule book that I didn't start creating my own rule book until maybe a little later than I wanted to. And so I've learned to not follow what other people want for art and that the more that I see of the world not just through travel, but the more that I see like reflected in history, the more that I relearn mm. the things that I was only taught partially <laughs> before, mm. um, that's now what I want my art to reflect. And so I think we're in a really big moment um, in the United States and then also globally where it feels like the art that I grew up really liking isn't what I turn to in the same way because my needs as a person have changed mm -hmm. because our world has changed. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I always want to make 
work that I need because I think other people will need it too. That's so beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, it's almost time to move into glistens, but where can our listeners find you, Marina? So you can find me at marinabergenstock.com. Um, if you want to see anything, maybe I'll update my blog there because of this. Um, but right now I'm on Stanford's campus. And so when the air quality is better, if anyone wants to go for a socially distanced walk with our masks. Um, what a great invitation. <laughs> we can do that. Um, but I'm also always down for a Zoom chat if we want to find each other in that way. Um, I love to talk about all kinds of things and it would be really lovely to to talk to anybody that's great yeah all right well time for glistens who wants to go first these are marina these are um or listeners who may be new um something from the week that struck you stuck with you inspired you etc so does either of you want to start us off um, I could go. All right. So couple, I've got two glistens. One is this really <laughs> cheesy uh, teen bop type show um, called Julie and the Anthems. Um, or no, sorry, not Anthems, Phantoms. Julie and the Phantoms. Um, it's on Netflix. You got I, I, fin- I binged that in four hours. Uh, insanity. Um, <laughs> So this show is about this young teen uh, lost her mother and she she used to sing a lot and her mom after her mom passed away she just stopped singing and then she finds this like old CD in her mom's little chest thing um got trunk and then she opens it and then a ghost appears like a, a ghost band like a boy <laughs> band appears that, that passed away 25 years ago and every time she sings uh, they could perform with her and people could see them like they're because they're ghosts. No, only she could see them, this um, teenager. But then whenever she sings and they perform together, the whole world sees them and it's like a very powerful thing. Um, so I binged that in four hours and I was like, why do I like this? <laughs> why can I not? I, I think there's something about ghosts and there's something about <laughs> young teens, like broken teenager finding and like these like, boy this like boy band uh <laughs> that is um that it was just like yeah this is all these elements that as a teenager i would have watched so you said it uh, was really bad but would you recommend it so <laughs> okay so if you are a millennial <laughs> uh, grew up watching high school musical on the disney channel uh you might like this got it you might like right. this um, and also I, I did a quick Google search and then this show was actually um, originally a Brazilian show. And then so they had, like adapted it into American. Hmm. Um, but yeah. Are you going to watch the Brazilian okay, so that's version? Probably uh, better. I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't know. I The music really, really was fun to listen to. I like, I went on Spotify and already Oh my gosh, it. you love it. Just oh. admit it. It wasn't bad. It was I good. I love it. Okay, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Twist my arm. I love it. <laughs> um, and my second listen is, so this month I've been 
challenging myself to read as many plays as I can uh, on New Play Exchange. This week was kind of weak because I was just like life caught up with me. Um, so, but the three plays I want to highlight um, from my reading this week is uh, A Murder of Crows by Franz Beck, uh, WYWH by Tom Moran, and Beth by Alex Lynn. Uh, these three was like, mm, these are really fun. A Murder of Crows is about, it's, it takes place kind of this, it's very timely, like very relevant right now in this post-apocalyptic environmental climate change world. Um, WYWH is very funny because it's, uh, I think that one's the one about this girl communi- has like communicating with this guy uh through telegram she's like online <laughs> and she's through telegram like from 1889 or something and they're just like Whoa. like chatting with each other like her language of like oh lol and he's like what's lol and they're just like trying to get <laughs> uh, it's really funny it's very short it's like i think it's a 10 minute play um and then beth by alex lynn it was really fun it's like a young teen asian american adaptation of macbeth um, oh yeah you've been telling me about that Oh, I yeah, get it's it. Really funny. Beth. Wow. That's Beth. Yeah. Beth. Took me way too girl long. Beth. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was really funny to fun to see um like a young Asian American teenage world, you know, in the world as Beth. Like that because you know, especially when Beth is like obviously by William Shakespeare, this white guy. So to see this adapt into this world was kind of fun to read. Um but yeah, so like that's my each other? Uh, well don't spoil it i guess i'll have to read it okay (laughs) there's nothing like crazy like that okay marina why don't you go next (laughs) what's your glisten um well cho inspired me to remember a glisten that i hadn't remembered um have either of you watched the babysitter's club on netflix oh my gosh no but but i want to clearly that's in my future (laughs) I was a huge fan of the books, like read them all and anything that sort of spawned out of them when I was growing up. And I just thought they were so lovely. But when it came on Netflix, I was like, I can't watch this because it's not going to be as good as my childhood and it's going to ruin everything. Until a fourth grader told me that they were very good and that I should watch them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did the whole first season. Um, but they were so lovely. Like they, they I'm obviously biased because like I feel the nostalgia when I'm watching them, but I feel like they they weren't problematic in their time, but they've been updated even with just some things like the Babysitter's Club. Right now, all of the members are um, female and they, but they have some lines where like they're, they're babysitting, but they are like, well, like obviously men can do this too. Like this is right. So like they're, they're aware of the, the world and the, the space and time they're in. There's a really great, um, trans plot with one of the children and it's just really nice to see trans characters like actualized and not having to go through trauma to be Mm, on a tv show um and they deal with one of the the girls has um type 1 diabetes and they talk about that and like what her life and adjusting to that that diagnosis is um so it's really just lovely like the the camaraderie the friendship the fights uh i remember telling though one of my former students this week about it and she said, oh, I watched it. And it definitely seems like it's for a, a much younger crowd. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yes. But 
But we all kind of need that right now. Right, like it was just so wholesome. Do you did you see the uh, movie that came out when we were kids? No. Oh, that was great. I I mean, maybe I'm painting it with like rose colored glasses, but I remember really liking that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, that sounds like I mean, you know, very nineties. So prepare yourself. Oh my gosh, the nineties were amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think I owe a lot of of my entrepreneurial spirit to babysitters. (laughs) I really do. I think when I watched that, I was just like, I always always wanted to like I could start start a business. Yeah. (laughs) I could start a business. I could start a a lemonade stand and and charge millions of dollars. (laughs) Like I could you know totally agree. Um one of my other glistens I have one that's sort of philosophical and one that's not, um, and then I'll be done, I promise. One of them is one of my cohort told me about an app or an add-on for the Google Maps app, which is the Stanford Gleaning Project, probably only useful if you're in this area, but it tells you where all of the fruit trees are on campus. Cool. Right? What? And some of them (laughs) are not like for public consumption and some seem to be. So if you're local and maybe check to see if your community has something like that. I'm not used to fruit trees because yeah. I just moved from Wisconsin. <laughs> all the campuses you've been on before were like buried in snow by October. <laughs> so That's someone so showed cool. me that, right? Wow. So neat. And I kept p- passing like pomegranate bushes. To, I'm not sure if that's actually the correct, if it was technically a bush, but like all of these pomegranates this week as I was taking a walk. Wow. So lovely. Um, well, and then something else like in the PhD orientation, they were giving us like some helpful advice. And I feel a little bit because I don't have any directing projects right now. This is the first time that I've ever gone more than six months without directing something. And it's the first time that I'm not teaching in the fall in Mm. 10 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So I I feel like a little bit of an identity crisis right now. Um, But just, it's just like a repositioning of where I am in my life. Um, But one of the professors said, make sure that you're really, um, it's worth developing the ability to single out the criticism and praise that is useful to you. Mm. And I love the articulation of it as the developing of an ability because again, as this like perfect student mode, I've always been like, if someone is saying this to me, it must be a (laughs) big shortcoming and I must correct it now. And like what a bad self-talk, right, to have for yourself. Um, so I was like, okay, like I can separate the weed from the chaff and that's just a great way to go into this. Mm-hmm. So totally, don't know if it's helpful for anyone else, <laughs> but also I had to Google what a weed and a chaff looked like because not uh, a metaphor that I'm really <laughs> well-versed in. Well, and just a shameless plug, listeners, if you're also wondering about listening to feedback and separating out what is useful, you should listen to our episode on feedback. Yes. Uh, which we <laughs> did last week. Um, but yeah, I agree. That's such a such an important skill to develop. And um, I feel like I have so much farther to go <laughs> on that journey. But I'm so excited now to go back to the Babysitter's Club movie and the, your feedback episode. Yeah. Oh, Very yeah. cool. Babysitter's Club movie. <laughs> I feel like it was like 1998 or something. It's going to be glorious. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, well, I have, since everybody's doing multiple glistens, I have two glistens as well. Um, the first one, which 
both of you were also at was um, the reading of the brand new Play With Music, Hearts on Fire, by one of our former guests, Nina Morrison, um, which was on Zoom. It was so good. Brand new play. Oh, yeah, good. Um, slash musical. I don't know. I want to be respectful of the genre <laughs> that Nina has chosen. I'm pretty sure it's a musical, but she's calling it a play with music. Anyway, um, so listeners, I feel like at some point in the future, you two will have the opportunity to experience that play. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. And then also, um, I... I attended, I don't know, I went to, I don't, I still don't understand what the right word is for just like watching things on Zoom, but um, a reading through Grinnell College and Prairie Lights Bookstore, which is in Iowa City, um, by Gabrielle Calvacaresi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, who is a poet. Well, it was kind of a reading slash really just like a conversation about poetry and teaching poetry and this moment in this country right now. Um, but that was really great. And <clears throat> they're definitely one of my favorite poets. So listeners, you should totally check out their work if you are looking for new poems to love. And that's all. That's so great. <laughs> That's my glisten. Wow. Yeah. This is probably the most glisten filled yeah, episode. Yeah. It's just glisten, glisten, glisten. Glisten. That's great. I love it. I love it. Well, Marina, thank you so much for coming onto our show. Thank you for having uh, me. It's been such a joy yeah. to get to talk to you both. And good luck with your um, <gasps> foray yeah, into you. academia again as a student. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please. Very Come visit at whenever it is safe to do so. The world is presenting <laughs> lots of obstacles to us right now, but yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.